Section 17 of The Oxford Book of American Essays Chosen by Brander Matthews This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 17 Theocritus came late in the classical age, and the shadows had deepened since Homer's time. The torches on the tombs were inverted. The imagery of immortality was faint and dim, but the natural world was still naturally seen, and if age was coming down the road, the brave man went bravely forward to meet the shadow. It was different on Cape Cod. Even Thoreau, who had escaped from the morasses of theology into the woods and accomplished the reversion to paganism in the shortest possible manner, never lost the habit of moralizing, which is a survival of the deep-going consciousness of sin describing the operations of a sloop dragging for anchors and chains he gave his text those neat hard touches of fancy which he had at command even in his most uncompromising semi-scientific moments to hunt to-day in pleasant weather for anchors which had been lost the sunken faith and the hope of mariners to which they trusted in vain now perchance it is the rusty one of some old pirate ship or Norman fisherman, whose cable parted here two hundred years ago, and now the best bower anchor of a Canton or California ship which has gone about her business. And then he drops into the depths of the moral subconsciousness from which the clear, clean waters of Walden Pond could not wash him. If the roadsteads of the spiritual ocean could be thus dragged, what rusty flukes of hope, deceived and parted chain cables of faith, might again be windlassed aboard, enough to sink the finder's craft, or stock new navies to the end of time. The bottom of the sea is strewn with anchors, some deeper and some shallower, and alternately covered and uncovered by the sand, perchance with a small length of iron cable still attached to which where is the other end so if we have diving bells adapted to the spiritual deeps we should see anchors with their cables attached as thick as eels in vinegar all wriggling vainly toward their holding ground but that is not treasure for us which another man has lost rather it is for us to seek what no other man has found or can find the tone is light almost trifling when one takes into account the imagery and the idea and the subconsciousness is wearing thin but it is still there thoreau's individual consciousness was a very faint reflection of an ancestral consciousness of the presence of sin and of moral obligations of an intensity almost inconceivable in these degenerate days. There was a time in a Cape Cod community when corporal punishment was inflicted on all residents who denied the scriptures and all persons who stood outside the meeting-house during the time of divine service were set in the stocks. The way of righteousness was not a straight and narrow path, but a macadamized thoroughfare, and woe to the man who ventured on a by-path. One is not surprised to learn that hysteric fits were very common, and that congregations were often thrown into the utmost confusion. For the preaching was far from quieting. Some think sinning ends with this life, said a well-known preacher, but it is a mistake. The creature is held under an everlasting law, the damned increase in sin and hell possibly the mention of this may please thee but remember there shall be no pleasant sins there no eating drinking singing dancing wanton dalliance and drinking stolen waters but damned sins bitter hellish sins sins exasperated by torments cursing god spite rage and blasphemy the guilt of all thy sins shall be laid upon thy soul and be made so many heaps of fuel he damns sinners heaps upon heaps 
It is not surprising to learn that as a result of such preaching the hearers were several times greatly alarmed, and on one occasion a comparatively innocent young man was frightened nearly out of his wits. One wonders in what precise sense the word comparatively was used. It is certain that those who had this sense of the sinfulness of things driven into them were too thoroughly frightened to see the world with the poet's eye. In Sicily nobody was concerned for the safety of his soul. Nobody was aware that he had a soul to be saved. Thoughtful people knew that certain things gave offence to the gods, that you must not flaunt your prosperity after the fashion of some American millionaires who have discovered in recent years that there is a basis of fact for the Greek feeling that it is wise to hold great possessions modestly that certain family and state relations are sacred, and that the fate of Oedipus was a warning, but nobody was making observations of his own frame of mind. There were no thermometers to take the spiritual temperature. In his representative capacity as poet, Theocritus, speaking for his people, might have said with Gautier, I am a man for whom the visible world exists. It is as impossible to cut the visible world loose from the invisible as to see the solid stretch of earth without seeing the light that streams upon it and makes the landscape. But Gautier came as near doing the impossible as any man could, and the goatherds and the pipe-players of Theocritus measurably approached this instable position. On Cape Cod, it is true they looked up and not down, but it is also true that they looked in and not out. In Sicily they looked neither up nor down, but straight ahead. The inevitable shadows fell across the fields whence the distracted Demeter sought Perisphone and Enceladus. Uneasily bearing the weight of Etna, poured out the vials of his wrath on thriving vineyards and on almond orchards white as with sea-foam. But the haunting sense of disaster in some other world beyond the dip of the sea was absent. If the hope of living with the gods was faint and far, and the forms of vanished heroes were vague and dim, the fear of retribution beyond the gate of death was a mere blurring of the landscape by a mist that came and went. The two workmen whose talk Theocritus overhears and reports in the tenth idol are not discussing the welfare of their souls. They are not even awake to the hard conditions of labor and take no thought about shorter hours and higher wages. They are interested chiefly in Bambika, lean dusk a gypsy. Twinkling dice thy feet, poppies thy lips, thy ways none knows how sweet and they lightened the hard task of the reaper of the stubborn corn in this fashion o rich in fruit and corn-blade be this field tilled well demeter and fair fruitage yield bind the sheaves reaper lest one passing say a fig for these they're never worth their pay let the mown swaths look northward ye who mow or westward for the ears grow fastest so Avoid a noontide nap, ye threshing men. The chaff flies thickest from the corn ears then. Wake when the lark wakes, and when he slumbers, close your work, ye reapers, and at noontide doze. Boys, the frog's life for me, they need not him who fills the flagon, for in drink they swim. Better boil herbs, thou toiler after gain, than splitting cumin, split thy hand in twain in sicily no reckoning of the waste of life had been kept and armies and fleets had been spent as freely in the tumultuous centuries of conquest as if in the overabundance of life these losses need not be entered in the book of account theocritus distills this sense of fertility from the air and the leaves of the idols are fairly astir with it the central myth of the island has a meaning quite beyond the reach of accident. Poetic as it is, its symbolism seems almost scientific. 
under skies so full of the light which in a real sense creates the landscape encircled by a sea which was fecund of gods and goddesses sicily was the teeming mother of flower-strewn fields and trees heavy with fruit trunks and boughs made firm by winds as the fruit grew mellow in the sun demeter moved through harvest fields and across the grassy slopes where herds are fed a smiling goddess poppies and corn sheaves on each laden arm forgetfulness of the ills of life dreams of olympian beauty and tempered energy in the fields are not these the secrets of the fair world which survives in the idols the corn and wine were food for the gods who gave them as truly as for the men who plucked the ripened grain and pressed the fragrant grape if there was a sense of awe in the presence of the gods there was no sense of moral separation no yawning chasm of unworthiness the gods obeyed their impulses no less readily than the men and women they had created both had eaten of the fruit of the tree of life but neither had eaten of the tree of knowledge of good and evil anybody might happen upon pan in some deeply shadowed place and the danger of surprising diana at her bath was not wholly imaginary religion was largely the sense of being neighbor to the gods they were more prosperous than men and had more power but they were different only in degree and one might be on easy terms with them they were created by the poetic mind and they repaid it a thousandfold with the consciousness of a world haunted by near familiar and radiant divinity the heresy which shattered the unity of life by dividing it between the religious and the secular had not come to confuse the souls of the good and put a full half of life in the hands of sinners religion was as natural as sunlight and as easy as breathing there was little philosophy and less science in sicily as theocritus reports it the devastating passion for knowledge had not brought self-consciousness in like a tide nor had the desire to know about things taken the place of knowledge of the things themselves the beauty of the world was a matter of experience not of formal observation and was seen directly as artists see a landscape before they bring technical skill to reproduce it so far as the men and women who work and sing and make love in the idols were concerned the age was delightfully unintellectual and therefore normally poetic the vocabulary of names for things was made up of descriptive rather than analytical words and things were seen in wholes rather than in parts from this point of view religion was as universal and all-enfolding as air and the gods were as concrete and tangible as trees and rocks and stars they were companionable with all sorts and conditions of men and if one wished to represent them he used symbols and images of divinely fashioned men and women not philosophical ideas or scientific formulae in this respect the roman catholic church has been both a wise teacher and a tender guardian of lonely and sorrowful humanity homer was not a formal theologian but the harvest of the seed of thought he sowed is not even now fully gathered he peopled the whole world of imagination christianity is not only concrete but historic and some day when the way of abstraction has been abandoned for that way of vital knowledge which is the path of the prophets the saints and the artists it will again set the imagination aflame meantime theocritus is a charming companion for those who hunger and thirst for beauty and who long from time to time to hang up the trumpet of the reformer and give themselves up to the song of the sea and the simple music of the shepherd's pipe colonialism in the united states by henry cabot lodge footnote this essay appeared originally in the atlantic monthly for may of eighteen eighty three during the thirty years which have elapsed since it was written the manifestations of the colonial spirit then apparent in the united states have not only altered in character but i am glad to say have weakened 
diminished and become less noticeable since eighteen eighty three also there has been much achieved by americans in art and literature in painting in sculpture in music and particularly in architecture success in all these fields has with few exceptions been won by men working in the spirit which is not colonial but which it was the purpose of this essay to inculcate as the true one to which alone we could look for fine and enduring achievement i have called attention to the date at which the essay was written in order that those who read it may remember that it applies in certain points to the conditions of thirty years ago and not to those of the present day End of footnote. nothing is more interesting than to trace through many years and almost endless wanderings and changes the fortunes of an idea or habit of thought the subject is a much neglected one even in these days of sweeping and minute investigation because the inherent difficulties are so great and the necessary data so multifarious confused and sometimes contradictory that absolute proof and smooth presentation seem well-nigh impossible yet the ideas the opinions even the prejudices of men impalpable and indefinite as they are have at times a wonderful vitality and force and are not without meaning and importance when looked at with considerate eyes the conditions under which they have been developed may change or pass utterly away while they mere shadowy creations of the mind will endure for generations long after the world to which it belong has vanished a habit of thought will live on indelibly imprinted upon the race or nation like the footprint of some extinct beast or bird upon a piece of stone the solemn bigotry of the spaniard is the fossil trace of the fierce struggle of eight hundred years with the moors the theory of the lord's day peculiar to the english race all over the world is the deeply branded sign of the brief reign of puritanism a certain fashion of thought prevailed half a century ago another is popular to-day there is a resemblance between the two the existence of both is recognized and both without much consideration are set down as sporadic and independent which is by no means a safe conclusion we have all heard of those rivers which are suddenly lost to sight in the bowels of the earth and coming as suddenly again to the surface flow onward to the sea as before or the wandering stream may turn aside into fresh fields and with new shapes and colors seem to have no connection with the waters of its source or with those which finally mingle with the ocean yet despite the disappearances and the changes it is always the same river it is exactly so with some kinds of ideas and modes of thought those that are wholly distinct from the countless host of opinions which perish utterly and are forgotten in a few years or which are still oftener the creatures of a day or an hour and die by myriads like the short-lived insects whose course is run between sunrise and sunset the purpose of this essay is to discuss briefly certain opinions which belong to the more enduring class they are sufficiently well known when they are mentioned every one will recognize them and will admit their existence at the particular period to which they belong the point which is overlooked is their connection and relationship they all have the same pedigree a marked resemblance to each other and they derive their descent from a common ancestor my intention is merely to trace the pedigree and narrate the history of this numerous and interesting family of ideas and habits of thought i have entitled them collectively colonialism in the united states a description which is perhaps more comprehensive than satisfactory or exact in the year of grace seventeen seventy six we published to the world our declaration of independence six years later england assented to the separation these are tolerably familiar facts 
that we have been striving ever since to make that independence real and complete, and that the work is not yet entirely finished, are not perhaps equally obvious truisms. The hard fighting by which we severed our connection with the mother country was in many ways the least difficult part of the work of building up a great and independent nation. The decision of the sword may be rude, but it is pretty sure to be speedy. Armed revolution is quick. A South American, in the exercise of his constitutional privileges, will rush into the street and declare a revolution in five minutes. A Frenchman will pull down one government today and set up another tomorrow, besides giving new names to all the principal streets of Paris during the intervening night. We English-speaking people do not move quite so fast. We come more slowly to the boiling point. We are not fond of violent changes, and when we make them we consume a considerable time in the operation. Still, at the best, a revolution by force of arms is an affair of a few years. We broke with England in 1776, we had won our victory in 1782, and by the year 1789 we had a new national government fairly started. But if we are slower than other people in the conduct of revolutions, owing largely to our love of dogged fighting and inability to recognize defeat, we are infinitely more deliberate than our neighbors in altering or even modifying our ideas and modes of thought. The slow mind and ingrained conservatism of the English race are the chief causes of their marvelous political and material success. After much obstinate fighting in the field, they have carried through the few revolutions which they have seen fit to engage in. But when they have undertaken to extend these revolutions to the domain of thought, there has arisen a spirit of stubborn and elusive resistance, which has seemed to set every effort, and even time itself, at defiance. By the Treaty of Paris our independence was acknowledged, and a name and theory was complete. We then entered upon the second stage in the conflict, that of ideas and opinions true to our race and to our instincts, and with a wisdom which is one of the glories of our history, we carefully preserved the principles and forms of government and law, which traced an unbroken descent and growth from the days of the Saxon invasion. But while we kept so much that was of inestimable worth, we also retained inevitably, of course, something which it would have been well for us to have shaken off together with the rule of George the Third and the British Parliament. This was the colonial spirit in our modes of thought. The word colonial is preferable to the more obvious word provincial, because the former is absolute, while the latter by usage has become in a great measure relative. We are very apt to call an opinion, a custom, or a neighbor provincial because we do not like the person or thing in question. And in this way, the true value of the word has of late been frittered away. Colonialism, moreover, has in this connection historical point and value, while provincialism is general and meaningless. Colonialism is also susceptible of accurate definition. A colony is an offshoot from a parent stock, and its chief characteristic is dependence. In exact proportion, as dependence lessens, the colony changes its nature and advances toward a national existence. For a hundred and fifty years we were English colonies. Just before the Revolution, in everything but the affairs of practical government, the precise point at which the break came, we were still colonies in the fullest sense of the term except in matters of food and drink and of the wealth which we won from the soil and the ocean we were in a state of complete material and intellectual dependence every luxury and almost every manufactured article came to us across the water our politics except those which were purely local were the politics of england and so also were our foreign relations our books our art our authors our commerce were all english and this was true of our colleges, our professions, our learning, our fashions, and our manners. 
there is no need here to go into the details which show the absolute supremacy of the colonial spirit and our entire intellectual dependence when we sought to originate we simply imitated the conditions of our life could not be overcome the universal prevalence of the colonial spirit at that period is shown most strongly by one great exception just as the flash of lightning makes us realize the intense darkness of a thunderstorm at night in the midst of the provincial and barren waste of our intellectual existence in the eighteenth century there stands out in sharp relief the luminous genius of franklin it is true that franklin was cosmopolitan in thought that his name and fame and achievements in science and literature belonged to mankind but he was all this because he was genuinely and intensely american his audacity his fertility his adaptability are all characteristic of america and not of an english colony he moved with an easy and assured step with a poise and balance which nothing could shake among the great men of the world he stood before kings and princes and courtiers unmoved and unawed he was strongly averse to breaking with england but when the war came he was the one man who could go forth and represent to europe the new nationality without a touch of the colonist about him he met them all great ministers and great sovereigns on a common ground as if the colonies of yesterday had been an independent nation for generations his autobiography is the cornerstone the first great work of american literature the plain direct style almost worthy of swift the homely forcible language the humor the observation the knowledge of men the worldly philosophy of that remarkable book are familiar to all but its best and considering its date its most extraordinary quality is its perfect originality it is american in feeling without any taint of english colonialism look at franklin in the midst of that excellent pennsylvania community compare him and his genius with his surroundings and you get a better idea of what the colonial spirit was in america in those days and how thoroughly men were saturated with it than in any other way in general terms it may be said that outside of politics and the still latent democratic tendencies the entire intellectual life of the colonists was drawn from england and that to the mother country they looked for everything pertaining to the domain of thought the colonists in the eighteenth century had in a word a thoroughly and deeply rooted habit of mental dependence the manner in which we have gradually shaken off this dependence retaining of the past only that which is good constitutes the history of the decline of the colonial spirit in the united states as this spirit existed everywhere at the outset and brooded over the whole realm of intellect we can in most cases trace its history best in the recurring and successful revolts against it which breaking out now here now there have at last brought it so near to final extinction in seventeen eighty nine after the seven years of disorder and demoralization which followed the close of the war the united states government was established every visible political tie which bound us to england had been severed and we were apparently entirely independent but the shackles of the colonial spirit which had been forging and welding for a century and a half were still heavy upon us and fettered all our mental action the work of making our independence real and genuine was but half done and the first struggle of the new national spirit with that of the colonial past was in the field of politics and consumed twenty-five years before victory was finally obtained we still felt that our fortunes were inextricably interwoven with those of europe we could not realize that what affected us nearly when we were a part of the british empire no longer touched us as an independent nation we can best understand how strong this feeling was by the effect which was produced here by the french revolution 
that tremendous convulsion it may be said was necessarily felt everywhere but one much greater might take place in europe to-day without producing here anything at all resembling the excitement of seventeen ninety we had already achieved far more than the french revolution ever accomplished we had gone much farther on the democratic road than any other nation yet worthy men in the united states put on cockades and liberty caps erected trees of liberty called each other citizen brown and citizen smith drank confusion to tyrants and sang the wild songs of paris all this was done in a country where every privilege and artificial distinction had been swept away and where the government was the creation of the people themselves these ravings and symbols had a terrific reality in paris and in europe and so like colonists we felt that they must have a meaning to us and that the fate and fortunes of our ally were our fate and fortunes a part of the people engaged in an imitation that became here the shallowest nonsense while the other portion of the community which was hostile to french ideas took up and propagated the notion that the welfare of civilized society lay with england and with english opinions thus we had two great parties in the united states working themselves up to white heat over the politics of england and france the first heavy blow to the influence of foreign politics was washington's proclamation of neutrality it seemed a very simple and obvious thing now this policy of non-interference in the affairs of europe which that proclamation inaugurated and yet at the time men marveled at the step and thought it very strange parties divided over it people could not conceive how we could keep clear of the great stream of european events one side disliked the proclamation as hostile to france while the other approved it for the same reason even the secretary of state thomas jefferson one of the most representative men of american democracy resisted the neutrality policy in the genuine spirit of the colonist yet washington's proclamation was simply the sequel to the declaration of independence it merely amounted to saying we have created a new nation and england not only cannot govern us but english and european politics are none of our business and we propose to be independent of them and not meddle in them the neutrality policy of washington's administration was a great advance toward independence and a severe blow to colonialism in politics washington himself exerted a powerful influence against the colonial spirit the principle of nationality then just entering upon its long struggle with states rights was in its very nature hostile to everything colonial and washington despite his virginian traditions was thoroughly imbued with a national spirit he believed himself and insensibly impressed his belief upon the people that true nationality could only be obtained by keeping ourselves aloof from the conflicts and politics of the old world then too his splendid personal dignity which still holds us silent and respectful after the lapse of a hundred years communicated itself to his office and thence to the nation of which he was the representative the colonial spirit withered away in the presence of washington the only thoroughgoing nationalist among the leaders of that time was alexander hamilton he was not born in the states and was therefore free of all local influences and he was by nature imperious in temper and imperial in his views the guiding principle of that great man's public career was the advancement of american nationality he was called british hamilton by the very men who wished to throw us into the arms of the french republic because he was wedded to the principles and the forms of constitutional english government and sought to preserve them here adapted to new conditions he desired to put our political inheritance to its proper use but this was as far as removed from the colonial spirit as possible instead of being british hamilton's intense eagerness for a strong national government made him the deadliest foe of the colonial spirit which he did more to strangle and 
crush out than any other man of his time the objects at which he aimed were continental supremacy and complete independence in business politics and industry in all these departments he saw the belittling effects of dependence and so he assailed it by his reports and by his whole policy foreign and domestic so much of his work as he carried through had a far-reaching effect and did a great deal to weaken the colonial spirit but the strength of that spirit was best shown in the hostility or indifference which was displayed toward his projects the great cause of opposition to hamilton's financial policy proceeded undoubtedly from state jealousy of the central government but the resistance to his foreign policy arose from the colonial ignorance which could not understand the real purpose of neutrality and which thought that hamilton was simply and stupidly endeavouring to force us toward england as against france washington hamilton and john adams notwithstanding his new england prejudices all did much while they were in power as the heads of the federalist party to cherish and increase national self-respect and thereby eradicate colonialism from our politics the lull in europe after the fall of the federalists led to a truce in the contests over foreign affairs in the united states but with the renewal of war the old conflict broke out the years from eighteen o six to eighteen twelve are among the least creditable in our history the federalists ceased to be a national party and the fierce reaction against the french revolution drove them into an unreasoning admiration of england they looked to england for the salvation of civilized society their chief interest centred in english politics and the resources of england formed the subject of their thoughts and studies and furnished the theme of conversation at their dinner tables it was just as bad on the other side the republicans still clung to their affection for france notwithstanding the despotism of the empire they regarded napoleon with reverential awe and shivered at the idea of plunging into hostilities with anyone the foreign policy of jefferson was that of a thorough colonist he shrank with horror from war he would have had us confine ourselves to agriculture and to our flocks and herds because our commerce the commerce of a nation was something with which other powers were likely to interfere he wished us to exist in a state of complete commercial and industrial dependence and allow england to carry for us and manufacture for us as she did when we were colonies weighed down by the clauses of the navigation acts his plans for resistance did not extend beyond the old colonial scheme of non-importation and non-intercourse agreements read the bitter debates in congress of those years and you find them filled with nothing but the politics of other nations all the talk is saturated with colonial feeling even the names of opprobrium which the hostile parties applied to each other were borrowed the republicans called the federalists tories and a british faction while the federalists retorted by stigmatizing their opponents as jacobins during these sorry years however the last in which our politics bore the colonial character a new party was growing up which may be called the national party not as distinguished from the party of states rights but as the opposition to colonial ideas this new movement was headed and rendered illustrious by such men as henry clay john quincy adams the brilliant group from south carolina comprising calhoun langdon cheves and william lowndes and at a later period by daniel webster clay and the south carolinians were the first to push forward the resistance to colonialism their policy was crude and ill-defined they struck out blindly against the evil influence which as they felt was choking the current of national life for they were convinced that to be truly independent the united states must fight somebody who that somebody should be was a secondary question 
of all the nations which had been kicking and cuffing us england was on the whole the most arrogant and offensive and so the young nationalists dragged the country into the war of eighteen twelve we were wonderfully successful at sea and at new orleans but in other respects this war was neither very prosperous nor very creditable and the treaty of ghent was absolutely silent as to the objects for which we had expressly declared war nevertheless the real purpose of the war was gained despite the silent and almost meaningless treaty which concluded it we had proved to the world and to ourselves that we existed as a nation we had demonstrated the fact that we had ceased to be colonies we had torn up colonialism in our public affairs by the roots and we had crushed out the colonial spirit in our politics after the war of eighteen twelve our politics might be good bad or indifferent but they were our own politics and not those of europe the wretched colonial spirit which had belittled and warped them for twenty-five years had perished utterly and with the treaty of ghent it was buried so deeply that not even its ghost has since then crossed our political pathway besides being the field where the first battle with the colonial spirit was fought out politics then offered almost the only intellectual interest of the country outside of commerce which was still largely dependent in character and very different in its scope from the great mercantile combinations of to-day religious controversy was of the past and except in new england where the liberal revolt against calvinism was in progress there was no great interest in theological questions when the constitution went into operation the professions of law and medicine were in their infancy there was no literature no art no science none of the multifarious interests which now divide and absorb the intellectual energies of the community in the quarter of a century which closed with the treaty of ghent we can trace the development of the legal and medical professions and their advance toward independence and originality but in the literary efforts of the time we see the colonial spirit displayed more strongly than anywhere else and in apparently undiminished vigor our first literature was political and sprang from the discussions incident to the adoption of the constitution it was however devoted to our own affairs and aimed at the foundation of a nation and was therefore fresh vigorous often learned and thoroughly american in tone its masterpiece was the federalist which marks an era in the history of constitutional discussion and which was the conception of the thoroughly national mind of hamilton after the new government was established our political writings like our politics drifted back to provincialism of thought and were absorbed in the affairs of europe but the first advance on the road to literary independence was made by the early literature of the constitution it is to this period also which covers the years from seventeen eighty nine to eighteen fifteen that washington irving the first of our great writers belongs this is not the place to enter into an analysis of irving's genius but it may be fairly said that while in feeling he was a thorough american in literature he was a cosmopolitan his easy style the tinge of romance and the mingling of the story-teller and the antiquarian remind us of his great contemporary walter scott in his quiet humour and gentle satire we taste the flavour of addison in the charming legends with which he has consecrated the beauties of the hudson river valley and thrown over that beautiful region the warm light of his imagination we find the genuine love of country and of home in like manner we perceive his historical taste and his patriotism in the last work of his life the biography of his great namesake but he wrought as well with the romance of spain and of england he was too great to be colonial he did not find enough food for his imagination in the america of that day to be thoroughly american he stands apart a notable gift from america to english literature but not a type of american literature itself 
he had imitators and friends whom it has been the fashion to call a school but he founded no school and he died as he lived alone he broke through the narrow trammels of colonialism himself but the colonial spirit hung just as heavily upon the feeble literature about him in those years also came the first poem of william cullen bryant the first american poem with the quality of life and which was native and not of imported origin in that same period too there flourished another literary man who was far removed in every way from the brilliant editor of diedrich knickerbocker but who illustrated by his struggle with colonialism the strength of that influence far better than irving who soared so easily above it noah webster poor sturdy independent with a rude but surprising knowledge of philology revolted in every nerve and fibre of his being against the enervating influence of the colonial past the spirit of nationality had entered into his soul he felt that the nation which he saw growing up about him was too great to take its orthography or its pronunciation blindly and obediently from the motherland it was a new country and a new nation and webster determined that so far as in him lay it should have linguistic independence it was an odd idea but it came from his heart and his national feeling found natural expression in the study of language to which he devoted his life he went into open rebellion against british tradition he was snubbed laughed at and abused he was regarded as little better than a madman to dare to set himself up against johnson and his successors but the hard-headed new englander pressed on and finally brought out his dictionary a great work which has fitly preserved his name his knowledge was crude his general theory mistaken his system of changes has not stood the test of time and was in itself contradictory but the stubborn battle which he fought for literary independence and the hard blows he struck should never be forgotten while the odds against which he contended and the opposition he aroused are admirable illustrations of the overpowering influence of the colonial spirit in our early literature what the state of our literature was what the feelings of our few literary men apart from these few exceptions and what the spirit with which webster did battle all come out in a few lines written by an english poet we can see everything as by a sudden flash of light and we do not need to look farther to understand the condition of american literature in the early years of the century in the waste of barbarism called the united states the only oasis discovered by the delicate sensibilities of mr thomas moore was in the society of mr joseph denny a clever editor and essayist and his little circle of friends in philadelphia the lines commonly quoted in this connection are those in the epistle to spencer beginning yet yet forgive me o ye sacred few whom late by delaware's green banks i knew which describe the poet's feelings toward america and his delight in the society of mr denny and his friends but the feelings and opinions of moore are of no moment the really important passage describes not the author but what denny and his companions said and thought and has in this way historical if not poetic value the lines occur among those addressed to the boston frigate when the author was leaving halifax farewell to the few i have left with regret may they sometimes recall what i cannot forget the delight of those evenings too brief a delight when in converse and song we have stolen on the night when they've asked me the manners the mind or the main of some bard i had known or some chief i had seen whose glory though distant they long had adored whose name had oft hollowed the wine-cup they poured and still as with a sympathy humble but true i have told of each bright son of fame all i knew 
they have listened and sighed that the powerful stream of america's empire should pass like a dream without leaving one relic of genius to say how sublime was the tide which had vanished away the evils apprehended by these excellent gentlemen are much more strongly set forth in the previous epistle but here we catch sight of the men themselves there they sit adoring englishmen and eagerly inquiring about them of the gracious mr moore while they are dolefully sighing that the empire of america is to pass away and leave no relic of genius in their small way they were doing what they could toward such a consummation it may be said that this frame of mind was perfectly natural under the circumstances but it is not to the purpose to inquire into causes and motives it is enough to state the fact here was a set of men of more than average talents and education not men of real talent and quality like irving but clever men forming one of the two or three small groups of literary persons in the united states they come before us as true provincials steeped to the eyes in colonialism and they fairly represent the condition of american literature at that time they were slaves to the colonial spirit which bowed before england and europe they have not left a name or a line which is remembered or read except to serve as a historical illustration they will ultimately find their fit resting place in the footnotes of the historian with the close of the english war the united states entered upon the second stage of their development the new era which began in eighteen fifteen lasted until eighteen sixty one it was a period of growth not simply in the direction of a vast material prosperity and a rapidly increasing population but in national sentiment which made itself felt everywhere wherever we turn during those years we discover a steady decline of the colonial influence politics had become wholly national and independent the law was illustrated by great names which take high rank in the annals of english jurisprudence medicine began to have its schools and to show practitioners who no longer looked across the sea for inspiration the monroe doctrine bore witness to the strong foreign policy of an independent people the tariff gave evidence of the eager desire for industrial independence which found practical expression in the fast growing native manufactures internal improvements were a sign of the general faith and interest in the development of the national resources the rapid multiplication of inventions resulted from the natural genius of america in that important field where it took almost at once a leading place science began to have a home at our seats of learning and in the land of franklin found a congenial soil but the colonial spirit cast out from our politics and fast disappearing from business and the professions still clung closely to literature which must always be the best and last expression of a national mode of thought in the admirable life of cooper recently published by professor lounsbury the condition of our literature in eighteen twenty is described so vividly and so exactly that it cannot be improved it is as follows the intellectual dependence of america upon england at that period is something that is now hard to understand political supremacy had been cast off but the supremacy of opinion remained absolutely unshaken of creative literature there was then very little of any value produced and to that little a foreign stamp was necessary to give currency outside of the petty circle in which it originated there was slight encouragement for the author to write there was still less for the publisher to print it was indeed a positive injury ordinarily to the commercial credit of a bookseller to bring out a volume of poetry or of prose fiction which had been written by an american for it was almost certain to fail to pay expenses a sort of critical literature was struggling or rather gasping for a life that was hardly worth living for its most marked 
characteristic was its servile deference to English judgment and the dread of English censure. It requires a painful and penitential examination of the reviews of the period to comprehend the utter abasement of mind with which the men of that day accepted the foreign estimate upon works written here, which had been read by themselves, but which it was clear had not been read by the critics whose opinions they echoed. Even the meekness with which they submitted to the most depreciatory estimate of themselves was outdone by the anxiety with which they hurried to assure the world that they, the most cultivated of the American race, did not presume to have so high an opinion of the writings of some of their countrymen as had been expressed by enthusiasts, whose patriotism had proved too much for their discernment. Never was any class so eager to free itself from charges that imputed to it the presumption of holding independent views of its own. Out of the intellectual character of many of those who at that day pretended to be the representatives of the highest education in the country, it almost seemed that the element of manliness had been wholly eliminated, and that, along with its sturdy democracy, whom no obstacles thwarted and no dangers daunted, the new world was also to give birth to a race of literary cowards and parasites. The case is vigorously stated, but is not at all overcharged. Far stronger indeed was Professor Lounsbury's statement in the commentary furnished by Cooper's first book. This novel, now utterly forgotten, was entitled Precaution. Its scene was laid wholly in England. Its characters were drawn from English society, chiefly from the aristocracy of that favoured land. Its conventional phrases were all English. Worst and most extraordinary of all, it professed to be by an English author, and was received on that theory without suspicion. In such a guise, did the most popular of American novelists and one of the most eminent among modern writers of fiction first appear before his countrymen and the world. If this were not so pitiable, it would be utterly ludicrous, and yet the most melancholy feature of the case is that Cooper was not in the least to blame, and no one found fault with him, for his action was regarded by every one as a matter of course. In other words, the first step of an American entering upon a literary career was to pretend to be an Englishman in order that he might win the approval not of Englishmen but of his own countrymen. If this preposterous state of public opinion had been a mere passing fashion, it would hardly be worth recording. But it represented a fixed and settled habit of mind, and is only one example of a long series of similar phenomena. We look back to the years preceding the revolution, and there we find this mental condition flourishing and strong. At that time it hardly calls for comment, because it was so perfectly natural. It is when we find such opinions existing in the year 1820 that we are conscious of their significance. They belong to colonists, and yet they are uttered by the citizens of a great and independent state. The sorriest part of it is that these views were chiefly held by the best-educated portion of the community. The great body of the American people who had cast out the colonial spirit from their politics and their business, and were fast destroying it in the professions, was sound and true. The parasitic literature of that day makes the boastful and rhetorical patriotism then in the exuberance of youth seem actually noble and fine, because with all its faults it was honest, genuine, and inspired by a real love of country. Yet it was during this period between the years 1815 and 1861 that we began to have a literature of our own and one in which any people could take a just pride. Cooper himself was the pioneer. In his second novel, The Spy, he threw off the wretched spirit of the colonist, and the story which at once gained a popularity that broke down all barriers was read everywhere with delight and approbation. 
the chief cause of the difference between the fate of this novel and that of its predecessor lies in the fact that the spy was of genuine native origin cooper knew and loved american scenery and life he understood certain phases of american character on the prairie and the ocean and his genius was no longer smothered by the dead colonialism of the past the spy and those of cooper's novels which belong to the same class have lived and will live and certain american characters which he drew will likewise endure he might have struggled all his life in the limbo of intellectual servitude to which moore's friends consigned themselves and no one would have cared for him then or remembered him now but with all his foibles cooper was inspired by an intense patriotism and he had a bold vigorous aggressive nature he freed his talents at a stroke and giving them full play attained at once a world-wide reputation which no man of colonial mind could ever have dreamed of reaching yet his countrymen long before his days of strife and unpopularity seemed to have taken singularly little patriotic pride in his achievements and the well-bred and well-educated shuddered to hear him called the american scot not because they thought this truly colonial description inappropriate and misapplied but because it was a piece of irreverent audacity toward a great light of english literature End of section 17